Amen. What an awesome word. It's only been uh, a couple of months since I was in uh, a church preaching every Sunday, and yet I feel like a novice this morning. In fact, I did a novice sort of thing. When I was asked to preach, I started studying all of this great information that I wanted to share with you, and when I was done, my sermon was eight pages long. <laughs> Uh, I used to do that when I was a young guy and only had a chance to preach every once in a while. I'd try to put everything in. But um, I'm going to make you a deal. If you go read this afternoon verses or chapters 17 and 18 of 1 Kings, I'll cut three pages off my sermon. How's that? <laughs> good. <laughs> Even a kid knows that's a good thing when the pastor <laughs> cuts pages off his sermon. It is always so good to be here at CCC. Sue and I feel like we're just coming home when we come here. And uh, I, uh, I didn't know that Pastor Leo was gonna be reading for me today, so you've heard part of this story. It's a page turner. Uh, chapter 18, we see Elijah standing up to Ahab, which in God's word, he's called the, the worst king of Israel the wickedest king of Israel. He stands before an entire nation and challenges their idolatry. I love that, how long will you waver between two opinions? The, the Hebrew is, how long will you limp between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. He uh, confronts them about these pagan idols, Baal and Ashtoreth, with this simple challenge. You make your offering, I'll make my offering. It answers with fire, he is God. And I don't know if you noticed, but Elijah did everything he could to make it hard. <laughs> Water and uh, all of that. There was no way this could have been a trick. It was, it was decisive, it was undeniable that God answered. On the other hand, after six hours of chanting and dancing and self-mutilation, uh, the supposed God of lightning and rain. That's who Baal was. God had shut off rain in the land for three years to get them to realize that Baal was a fraud. But they're still worshiping the God of lightning and rain, but he makes no appearance. He can't be bothered with a lightning bolt. Elijah prays a simple prayer and Yahweh answers instantly. Fire comes down and consumes bull, wood, stone, altar, and the water that he put in the trench. Elijah witnessed a cultural, cultural revolution. People who had been following Baal or trying to hold on to Baal and Yahweh at the same time were suddenly on their face shouting, the Lord, he is God, or Yahweh, he is God. Inst interestingly, that's what Elijah's name means. That's the even his name was a message to the people. And then the prophets of Baal, we didn't read this, the prophets of Baal are slain with a sword. And that's where I want to drop into the story. God completely vindicated. Elijah completely vindicated as his prophet. Baal totally discredited. An entire nation returning to God. You know what I see? I see a pastor at the pinnacle of his ministry. How, how could it get any better? 
And if you had never read beyond 1 Kings 18 in your Bible, I doubt you would guess where we will find Elijah next. We're, told, we're not told how much time elapsed, but it probably wasn't long. It might have even been the next day or that evening, Ahab went home and told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. So this is, these, this is the first verse of chapter 19, if you're following along. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. How would Elijah respond? It says Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And he ran. He ran south out of the Israel's territory, completely across the length of the country of Judah, left his servant in the furthest town, Beersheba, and then went another day's journey, probably 15 miles into the desert in the direction of Egypt. Why is it that God's people always run back to Egypt when they're in trouble? That's 115 miles by foot. Elijah put as much distance as possible between himself and Jezebel's authority and exhausted, he laid down under a broom tree. When we were in Israel, we saw those all over the place. Uh, it's called by different names, acacia. Uh, it's a common desert shrub. It'll give a little bit of shade. You can eat it and you can burn it. That's about all it's good for. He found one, laid down exhausted, and asked God to take his life. How do you make that journey? The journey from pinnacle to pits, from fearless faithfulness to fear-gripped despondency, from total dependence on God and total obedience to God to desertion fueled by self-preservation. How do you make that journey? Well, it's significant to me as a minister and as a, just a follower of Jesus Christ to know that it can happen. Just to know that that can happen. Eliza's journey warns me against complacency in my service to God. And it warns me against an assumption I've heard people making. I gotta explain with a story uh, Sue and I went through a very tough time in Panama dealing with COVID and the church. And that's no surprise. I found out every pastor in his own way went through a really tough time. And you all went through. We all suffered. It's, it's not a surprise. But when we had come through the worst of it and our church was back together and we were rebounding, I started reading about what some pastors had gone through and how they were reacting, and I kept coming across this same statistic. Uh, multiple uh, editorials quoted it. 
that midway through COVID, they had surveyed pastors and that 24% of them admitted that they were seriously thinking about leaving their congregations because of the relational dynamics going on in their church. By the end of COVID, 39% of pastors had seriously considered throwing in the towel on their given ministry. But worse than that, 50%. Now this is up from 9% prior to COVID. By the end, 50% of pastors had seriously considered at some time leaving ministry altogether. Those statistics um, floored me. <laughs> uh, and I, I wondered how many of the pastors will follow through. They're discouraged. How many of them will actually pull the, the pin on that grenade? <laughs> but there was something that hit me even harder. Most of the time when I would share that statistic, people like me would be sympathetic and say, that's awful, we need to pray for pastors. But there were a number of people that I shared that statistic with who responded with, good. I was blown away, I was speechless the first time someone said that to me. I, I thought, what are you thinking? How would pastors leaving ministry be a good thing? Well, I started asking them that question, and, and here's what I gathered from those conversations. Some people seem to think that if you thought about leaving, or you did leave, you probably didn't belong in ministry in the first place. They said things like, well, yeah, false shepherds leave when the, the uh, sheep are attacked, or God is sifting his church, or he's getting rid of the dead wood. What do you think about that? Was that a just appraisal of the situation? Let me ask it differently. Would you say that about Elijah? Other than this instance, Elijah's track record is stellar. He's fearless, he's faithful, he's obedient, he's zealous for God. I can't Think of or find a single charge anywhere in Scripture laid against the prophet by God. Elijah did everything God commanded, and in the end, he's one of a few people in Scripture who God bodily, live, took to heaven. Like Enoch, who walked with God. Elijah pleased God. Elijah followed God. So I think we need to be careful not to call weariness waywardness. Discouragement doesn't equal disobedience. Fatigue isn't the same as faithlessness. I don't think we ought to make those assumptions about pastors who are struggling, and I don't think we want those assumptions made about us when we face hard times. Well, Sue and I left a church full of people we loved in a very sweet spot in the world. Uh, people ask me, how are you guys doing? And our, my common answer is, we're called. <laughs> but we did that 
to see if we might be used to strengthen pastors and keep them in the game. The organization we're serving is called Broomtree Ministries, and it gets its name from this passage. The Broomtree is where Elijah lay down exhausted for some rest. I, I want to read you more of this passage. Uh, I'll start in 1 Kings 19.3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he, be, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. You want to know how tired Elijah was? He slept through the smell of baking bread. He ate and drank and lay down again. Then, Elijah, then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altar, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. So I've been studying this, these chapters <laughs> to see what happened to Elijah in his journey that led him to the broom tree. Now, I, I'm not going to turn this into a, a missionary moment, but if you want to know the connection, what we do as the broom tree ministry soon, I would love to talk to you about it. What led Elijah to the broom tree what happened in this journey? And there are really, uh, I'm going to share some lessons from the broom tree, but there's a couple of things I want us to hear today. 
I want to hear what was happening in Elijah's heart with discouragement and fatigue and things like that. But more importantly, I want to see how God treated his fleeing prophet. In verse 4, we hear Elijah's first complaint. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I've had enough. If you heard somebody say that, you might ask, what? <laughs> and they might tell you, I've had enough of conflict, or I've had enough of board meetings, or I've had enough of uh, financial issues, or, or whatever. Enough of what, Elijah? Remember that Elijah had just had his greatest spiritual victory. He saw God come through in undeniable ways, the system supporting false religion in his country took a, a staggering blow. Elijah witnessed a, that cultural revolution. I mean, most of the pastors that I meet want to be world changers for God. They want to see lives changed. They want to see their country changed. And Elijah got to see that. He, or at least he thought he was seeing the beginning of it. A cultural revolution, entire nation on their face before God in worship. And I can imagine Elijah, who's come off of a long, hard ministry, thinking, my work is done here. They get it. Things will finally change in my country. Well, that night we're told that Jezebel got a full report. That means she heard how her prophets were impotent, how her deities were powerless. Worse, they completely were absent. She heard how Elijah prayed one simple prayer and, and fire came and left a divot in the earth where there had been an offering and altar. Even the stones were gone. Well, Elijah woke up the day after this triumphant display of Yahweh's power, his majesty, and his reality. If you read the chapters uh, 16, 17, and 18, you're going to hear over and over again the people who believe in the Lord say things like, as surely as the Lord God lives. That was up for debate in their culture. This showed the reality of God. So he wakes up from this great victory, and what does he find? Another staunchly unconvinced enemy of the true God who is swearing out death warrants in the names of her worthless deities. That I know of, the Bible doesn't decisively state what Elijah had had enough of. But I believe it was his nation's unrelenting resistance to Yahweh. Elijah had come out of three years of hiding and deprivation. He was fed by the birds. He had to go to Zarephath into enemy territory and be fed by a widow. He'd seen this great vindication of his teaching more importantly, he had seen the vindication of the God that he loved and served wholeheartedly. 
And if you'll allow me to do an anachronism here, he woke up the next day and the newspapers hadn't changed. And the feed was the same on Facebook. And Fox was still bilching out the same stuff. And so was CNN. Nothing had changed. And he thought, there is no evil, there is no end in sight to evil. And he said, I've had enough. Just take my life. Look at the second part of Elijah's complaint. Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. What does that mean? I think sometime during his running, Elijah came to his senses. He had seen, he had had enough faith to face off against a murderous king, enough faith in God to stand against uh, the entire religious and governmental system in his country, enough faith to pray for fire, enough faith to pray for rain, and he had seen God come through on every account. So why did he crumble when it came to God handling Jezebel? As he ran, he realized, I'm no better than Abraham, who ran to Egypt, or I should say Abram, who ran to Egypt when faced with famine. I'm no better than the Israelites who saw all of God's judgments in, in, in Egypt and walked through the sea on dry land and then wondered if God could take care of food and water. And I identify with Elijah here. I have faced a lot of discouraging people in ministry. Hope that doesn't shock you. <laughs> I've faced a lot of discouraging people in ministry, but the most discouraging person I have ever come in contact with is me. Because I have seen so much grace and mercy and provision and love from God, and then a new trial comes up and I run. What does God do with people like me and people like Elijah? Well, in the story, nothing at first. God didn't respond. He is going to intervene in Elijah's life, but first he let Elijah sleep. <laughs> and it's just a reminder to me that God knows what we are made of and that sometimes we just need rest. When God did engage with Elijah, the message was rather mundane. This is in the middle of verse five. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there was, by his head was a cake of baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel or messenger the reason I make that distinction is that the word melech in Hebrew has to be, you have to decide. Is it talking about a heavenly being or an earthly messenger or an envoy or an ambassador? And he could have been either. I'm not denying that this was an angelic heavenly being. It could have been. But it also could have been a mortal servant of God that God got a hold of and said, I want you to go out in the desert. It's interesting, some translations say that Elijah laid down under a certain broom tree. 
Go to this broom tree. Find Elijah and take care of him. And the reason I do that is sometimes we, we get way too wowed with angels, <laughs> with messengers. We go, oh, wow, an angel showed up to take care of Elijah. And we miss the Lord who sent the angel. And I think this is so important in the story. The amazing thing here is that the Lord sent someone to his running servant. The emphasis should be on the Lord. The Lord sought out his running servant, and the Lord graciously saw to his needs, and the Lord gave him rest. Here's a lesson from the broom tree. God pursues his running servants with grace. God pursues his running servants with grace. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, God is pursuing you with grace. No matter where you are at this moment in your life. Even if you happen to be running at this moment in your life. God is pursuing you with grace. And you have a great advantage over Elijah. In Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you have an intercessor who knows exactly what it's like to be human. One who, according to Hebrews 4, sympathizes with our weaknesses. One who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And the passage, that passage encourages us, in light of that truth, to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. God pursues his running servants with grace and mercy and helps them in their time of need. Now I'm not encouraging that you take journeys into the desert. I'm not encouraging you to run from the Lord trusting in his grace. That would be foolish in light of the cross. But I am encouraging you, if you wake up at some time in your life and you're far from God and you're running, he's not far from you. And you should turn and pursue him with confidence. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. This became a fascinating part of the study for me. God knew what the journey ahead was like for Elijah. He knew where Elijah was headed, but we're never told why Elijah ran that direction in the first place. I believe that's where he originally set out for. He said, I'm fleeing from Jezebel to Horeb, the mountain of God, but he didn't make it. He was so exhausted, he laid under that broom tree and asked for God to just finish it. Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place where God met with Moses. So from where Elijah had run to already, it was another 12 to 14 day trip on foot through some very rugged terrain. But as we discover in the text uh, quickly, the journey ahead was way more than Elijah expected. He might have been expecting 12 to 14 days, but when we read this, it says, strengthened by the food, he traveled 
40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. You know, you know what I'm discovering as I get more and more mileage? Life always costs more than I anticipate. It costs more relationally, physically, especially now in my life. I do something that I used to do and think, oh, this, and then I wake up and go, why do I hurt so bad? It always costs more than I think, physically, emotionally, monetarily. When Sue and I left from here, we're leaving from here and going to serve in Panama. Uh, we, we tried to be wise, we got good counsel, uh, we planned as carefully as we could, we tried to calculate the costs, but that journey demanded more of us than we ever could have anticipated. I didn't know how much just grief and loneliness I was going to experience having left all of you. I didn't know how much energy it would take to build uh, trust and capital with another group of people and, and win their friendship. I, I didn't realize how cranky expats are who have nothing better to do than sit on the beach and complain about life and how many hits we would take from them. Now, thankfully, we went with some inkling that we were not enough for the journey or that the journey was too much for us and uh, with encouragements to trust that God would provide. But I am still amazed at how many times and in how many ways God had to step in and fill the void between our resources and reality. So why am I surprised now that it's really hard to come back? This journey that Sue and I are on is too much for us but it's not too much for God. Have you come to terms with that? That the journey is too much for you? Or do you think you can handle whatever life throws at you? Friends, there's great strength in finding out, in letting go of self-sufficiency and looking to God for your provision and your future. Now, I feel a little tentative here still, so I would be corrected. <laughs> uh, I, I'm alerting you that this is my reading of the text, but I believe Mount Horeb was always Elijah's plan and was never a call from God. The next day, when Elijah wakes up in the cave, he's finally made it to Mount Horeb. Verse 9 says, And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? That sounds a lot more like God talking to Adam when he's hiding in the garden. If this had been God's plan, God would have said, Great, you're finally here. But he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't know if you get the significance of this. If I'm understanding this correctly, Elijah went on a trip 
that God didn't call him on. (laughs) And yet God graciously, miraculously sustained Elijah on that trip. Are you tracking with me? Elijah's on his own. He's doing what Elijah thinks is best. And yet God graciously, miraculously, even (laughs) Elijah gets up and he's still bent on going to Horeb. And God says, it's it's too much for you, Elijah. Let me provide for this trip that you're doing. God is so much more gracious than we are. We see somebody bail out of ministry and we say, well, God's pruning the, the vine. He's getting rid of the dead wood. We'd probably say, you can go, but you're on your own. But God cared for his wandering servants all, his wandering servant all along the way. And I, I read a passage, I, I come across something like that and think, do I really believe Jesus when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you? God didn't come with accusations or reprimands, just a simple question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left. Uh, the older translations say, I, only I, am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. There are two things that jumped out at me from Elijah's response. And the first is that it sounds like he's been rehearsing this speech. Maybe you'll remember from when I read the passage that God actually asked this question twice of Elijah. And Elijah (laughs) repeats verbatim the same answer. You can see this in the text. Verses 10 and 14 match exactly, word for word. He doesn't paraphrase. He repeats it exactly the same. Do you have a tape that plays in your heart? I uh, just had a meeting with a pastor this last week, and I was talking about this passage in Elijah, and we got to this place, and he said, you know what, that is so true. He said, I had thought of all the reasons I could quit, all the justifications for walking away from my ministry to the point that I had a signed resignation letter sitting in my desk drawer. Thankfully, God uh, got a hold of him. He didn't quit. God got him through. But do you have a tape that plays in your head? Do you rehearse your reasons for quitting now, you're not in the ministry, maybe, but do you rehearse your reasons for quitting your marriage or for shutting off that wayward child or for other hard relationships that God has called you into? Have you even at times compiled your case against God? If you haven't done that, you're better than me and Elijah. Every time I allow myself to get absorbed in sobbing into my own soup, 
it always takes me away from God. It takes me in the opposite direction from his will for my life. Here's the second thing I noticed in Elijah's answer. The facts of his case weren't totally in line with reality. He says, the Israelites, blanket statement, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. All of them, Elijah? Not long before Elijah, if you read the the text again, you're going to find out that there's a, a guy named Obadiah. He's the household servant of Ahab, so he's living right under the nose of Ahab and Jezebel, and yet he's a devout follower of Yahweh, so much so that right under their noses, he has been feeding two groups of prophets, risking his own life to do so. So everybody's rejected the covenant? That's that's not true, Elijah. And and what about those prophets? (laughs) How are you the only one left if Obadiah has been keeping a hundred alive? And uh, if you read this whole, the, the life of Elijah, you will find the prophets of Elijah popping up everywhere. Elijah was not alone. And he would find out even more so that he was not alone. Now, Elijah wasn't lying to God. It's what he believed. In fact, uh, what I really think is happening is that his discouragement and fear distorted his reality and robbed him of the divine perspective, of seeing things as God saw them, of trusting the things that God had said. How would God respond to Elijah's complaint? First, with an important visual lesson. He tells Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. This is verse 11. And then a great and powerful wind tears the mountains, shatters the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord is not in the wind. After the wind, there's an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. You see, Elijah had already witnessed the might of God on Mount Carmel. But it had not kept him from fear or desertion. Here he witnesses powerful forces, forces that are often connected in Scripture with God's presence, but God is not in those miraculous signs. He is, in a still, small voice, a whisper. The mighty and miraculous has not sustained Elijah. The mighty and miraculous has not changed his nation. Only the word of the Lord would do. And that's a great lesson for me. That's what got Elijah out of his cave, the voice of the Lord. And people today are fascinated and enthralled with the miraculous and will swallow almost everything while neglecting the voice of God in his word. God asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah presses play on his recorder 
And out comes exactly the same complaint. And here is God's final response. Go back the way you came. Those words are so simple and sweet and filled with hope for me. Go back the way you came. It's possible. Elijah deserted his calling, abandoned his post. He, he overlooked years of God's sustaining grace and ran for his life after one nasty look, one nasty note from Jezebel. He, he ran miles and miles from the place God had called him to minister. And how did God respond? Who do you think you are, Elijah? No. How could you forget, Elijah? No. If that's how you're going to behave, you're on your own, buddy. No. You should have known better, Elijah. Your ministry is done. No. Simply go back the way you came. Return to your calling. Get back in the game. Walk back into danger and conflict. But then God revealed his entire plan to Elijah. You can read it in the next few verses. And it's amazing. Everything Elijah complained about, everything Elijah was worried about, is covered in God's plan. And here's the secret. It always was. It always was covered in God's plan. That's what Elijah needed to know, and that's what we need to know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that you are so much more gracious than we understand. Father, I do pray that people wouldn't hear this message and uh, take advantage of your grace, that think little dalliances with the world are okay because your grace is there. That would be limping between two opinions. If God is God, serve him. If sex is God, serve that. If money is God, serve that. Father, Raise a mighty chorus in the hearts of your people. Yahweh, he is God. And refresh us in knowing that you are a God who pursues us with grace and mercy so that we can find help in times of need and that you are a God who is gentle with us, understanding us, that you are a God who is there who does not leave us or forsake us. And so Father, if there's somebody who thinking, they're thinking of running or they are in mid-flight, I pray that you would give them grace through your Holy Spirit to turn and pursue you because you are there. And Father, I wanna pray for pastors. I pray for the pastors of this church who faced discouragement and struggles and trial 
I pray that they would have responsive people, supportive people. Now, these are things that are commanded in Scripture, but I pray that they would come from gentle and loving hearts towards the pastors here. I, I don't know the issues, but Father, I pray that you'd encourage each one. And uh, where there are thoughts of quitting, I pray that you would renew a sense of their calling like you did for Elijah and give them strength and energy to stay in the game for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of his people. I ask these things in Jesus' name and let all his people say, amen.